Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we are on the precipice of the Players Tour something or other in Phoenix. What's it actually called? I don't know. Nobody knows. It doesn't matter. You know what event we're talking about. There's multiple Magic the Gathering tournaments. One is a GP. One is a Mythic Championship qualifier. No, Players Tour qualifier. No. No, no. That... Uh, who knows? Whatever. We know what's going on, sort of. You're playing to get to the Pro Tour Finals. Is it still called that? Or is it Players Tour Finals? Players Tour Finals, I believe. Anyway, I, there's I there's a regional PT type of business. There's a bunch of PTQs, some LCQs. And I am going. Brian is not, which is completely fine and understandable. But there are no modern events. I looked at the schedule and I'm like kind of excited about that because it means I don't have to take as many cards with me. So that's nice. And yeah, I feel like we should talk some Pioneer because we do have two big events that happened that we can talk about. And also the framing for this episode is a little different. Normally we, at the end of each episode, we ask a question or we ask four questions in the people in our Discord and we pick one and answer them for this we decided to just go all out and answer questions for people who are going to be in Phoenix that weekend. Like anything that they want to know about as far as the GP, the the PT, the PTQs, etc. And we got some nice questions to go through. So what do you want to do? Just top to bottom? That's it? Yeah, we'll just go down the list, take them as they come. Like you said, I think our patrons stepped up with some good ones here. And if you want to participate in stuff like this in the future... Make sure you head to patreon.com slash arena decklist and you can get all the benefits we have for our patrons there. So who gets the pin? We do because we're answering all the questions. Congratulations us. I've wanted one of these arena decklist pins for such a long time. I've never won one before. Finally, this is our moment to claim one. Yeah, I mean, I guess we've never specifically said that we can't ask questions. Right. We just have never participated. I feel like we're just blowing it. Correct. We asked the question, hey, Discord, what do you have for us? They came with all these great answers. So obviously, we have done the most to benefit the podcast this week, and we've earned our pins. Great. All right. Uh, First question comes from Nick Prince. Nick asks, does your strategy or deck selection change at all for LCQs as opposed to other events? Couple things to weigh here. Let's think about the psychology of people participating in LCQs. Is there anything different going on there? Now, my assumption is if you are participating in the LCQ for the PT, you care a lot about organized play. You are quite enfranchised. Maybe you even traveled on this lark with the possibility of securing one of these spots. Maybe you care a lot about whatever the pro point equivalent is now. Maybe you just have this goal of playing in one of these PTs. For whatever reason you are there, you're probably very invested. And I would expect you to have all the hallmarks of an invested player, deck mobility, up to the minute knowledge. So I don't think there's anything you can really exploit in terms of deck selection. Now, in terms of just like maximizing wins because you have no losses to give, Look, there's mathematics that support the idea that you should lean towards a more polarized deck in these scenarios. So if you want to lean on that, that's fine. 
for me, I want to ensure I have access to every game. And what I mean by that is I don't want to play a deck prone to lose to its mana base or one that will never allow me to make decisions over the course of the game. Things like, I don't know, Neoform come to mind, although I am coming around on that <laughs> deck slowly but surely. But I want to be sure that like I have a sense of agency. Maybe that's my own biases and I should let that go. But I am inclined to play something that can put forth a consistent performance and that's all about I that's about all I have for deck selection. I mean, do you have any insight? Have you ever spiked one of these LCQs going back to the old PT? No, I played in a few. I know I played a limited one in Chicago and a constructed one in New Orleans, but for for the most part, once I was like super invested, I was mostly just qualified for things. Uh, I think right. New Orleans was the one where like I actually tried to qualify for and failed and then cared enough that I went to play in the LCQ and just blew it. So <laughs> that was, it was, a, it was a good learning experience for me overall, like that entire season. But three things come to mind. The first is that you have to go five Oh to qualify. So I do think that there is a weirder mentality surrounding the, the players who choose to sign up for that tournament. When in actuality, I don't think that it should affect anything but the fact that it affects other people means that it should probably affect you to some degree. If there's some deck that like you noted, you know, like maybe playing a polarized deck is better because you have to win all your matches or whatever. If everyone else is thinking that, and there is a strong ish, like fairly obvious polarizing archetype that you think that might be more prevalent in the LCQ than any other given PTQ or PT or, or what have you, then maybe you can make a decision about that. I don't necessarily think that that's the case here. The second thing is that the tournament starts on Thursday. So a lot of time you see people not being able to make it out for the entirety of a GP weekend because, you know, just like taking a day off work for most people is just not really in the cards. So like you'll see people, you know, come... Friday night, leave Sunday night, stuff like that to try and make it so they don't miss a lot of work. And I would imagine that if you were there on Thursday playing in the LCQ, you're probably pretty serious about it. Or, you know, you maybe you don't have a job or you have a, a job with flexible hours, but that also likely means that you are very enfranchised in magic if you have something like that. You know, like what the hell else are you going to spend your free time on, right? The other thing is that you have to play the same deck that you win the LCQ with in the Pro Tour. Yeah, that's an interesting little wrinkle. So that rule, if anything, should mean that you shouldn't stray too far from what you would normally play, right? Like, say, maybe playing something super polarizing is better for winning the LCQ. I mean, it's not going to be better by much. And then once you get to the, the Pro Tour itself, well... I mean, then maybe you're just drawing dead and that's not really where you want to be, right? Like you don't want to grind in to the PT just to have like be locked into playing a bad deck or whatever, right? So I think that realistically you should just do your thing and there are what, like 25% or less people who like XO into top eight of PTQs and the other people are like X and one and then maybe get to draw or have to play the last round or whatever. So like five O is not 
that wild, right? It's not like you have to go Tenno. It's not the the arena MCQ, basically. I, I just don't think that you should change much, if at all, unless there is something very specific that you think can lead to you making some sort of hard read. What about open decklist policy? Because that will be part of these LCQs. We've talked a little bit about how you've altered your decklist in the past for open decklist policy. I've talked about it in the context of arena tournaments with perfect information. Do you want to just give a little spiel on how you want to account for that aspect of the LCQ? Focusing on things like open decklists when you haven't even necessarily like mastered your archetype or have the correct sideboard plans and stuff like that. It just, it seems like a waste of time to me. Like there is an order of operations that you must adhere to first and foremost is just knowing your deck inside and out and actually having a good deck choice period. You know, you just end up spewing off so much equity. If you're spending your time thinking about like which one of you should play and how you should design your sideboard to trick you to trick people when, you know, you just haven't even done the first part of things. Right. So my advice would be, unless you inherently know how to gain an advantage with open decklist stuff, just don't even worry about it, especially for the LCQ. Once you get to the the pro tour itself, then it starts mattering, you know, like people are able to pay attention to the specific configuration of your deck and like alter their game plan accordingly in an LCQ. I think people are mostly going to look at a deck list and be like, Oh, this is your archetype and not necessarily pay a lot of close attention to what cards you're specifically playing. It's interesting. I agree that that's what I think opponents will do, but there is a lot of incentive to paying close attention to these things right now. I think specifically in the Pioneer format, there are some really minute differences in decks. And I saw this as I watched SCG Richmond this past weekend. Very small changes in tech fundamentally change a lot of matchups. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through the specific decks that are going to be part of this tournament. But I guess I will say this. If you are in the LCQ and you have the capacity to analyze your opponent's deck, don't pass on that. Maybe practice the quick reading of a deck list and understanding what's important. I can't tell you how many times I post a deck list, say in the Discord, and people respond to it with a comment that just misses the point of that deck list. Right. Because they don't have the practice or the alacrity with just being exposed to a deck list and finding the unique wrinkles, especially with something like the Demir Inverter deck. I think the sideboard plan you are being presented with drastically changes how you have to sideboard in the matchup. Things like Packrat versus Ashiok make a world of difference. So make sure you are accounting for those things. Do not pass on the information provided to you. I would say that's more important than altering what you're doing to account for the open deck list. Yes, like there, there is definitely equity to be gained. But again, I think it is less important to focus on that than the fundamental stuff. Sure. It's all it's all a ladder and it will always come down to playing good fundamental magic and understanding your deck first and foremost. That is always where your greatest edge lies. The other stuff has to come second. All right. Next question. Sure. VTCLA, uh, Richmond's top four competitor, correct? Correct. 
do I have to respect Niv or will people give up on it after it got beat last weekend in the hands of everyone except for Paulo? I think Paulo did an excellent job answering this question. If you read his article over on Star City today, basically, Paulo says this is a deck which has a drastic amount of tutoring power. It sees a huge portion of its deck via Niv's abilities. A difference of one to two cards can completely alter how the deck plays in a bunch of matchups. He believes their deck was very good. He is maybe the greatest Magic player of all time. I have very little reason to doubt him. I also believe that if his deck was mediocre and he got lucky, he would probably own that and would, would put forth that idea. So I think the horrible, horrible performance from Niv, I mean, if you saw the numbers, they were bad. And you would think this archetype should just be gone. But then you check in with Paulo and he did have this success. And imagine if you have as well-tuned lists as Paulo did, which he wrote an article, gave you a sideboard guide. You basically have access to it right now. And nobody's trying to account for this archetype. It is going to have a very, very good time at this event. So I, I think letting it go completely from your preparation would be a huge, huge mistake. I will say I expect the numbers to go down. And it will be much less represented at this event than it was at either of the last two. But I think it's a mistake to just pass on this archetype entirely. Yeah, there there are about uh, 15 playable decks in Pioneer, I would say. And Niv is certainly among them. I do agree that it is going to be trending down. But it is also a deck that if you can respect it, you should. I I think that people speak in absolutes a lot when they of course. they definitely don't have to. It's just like well, should I just like play a deck that scoops to this? I mean, maybe like if that's the thing that gives you the most equity, sure. But realistically, there are things that you can do to still hedge against Niv and sort of respect it without sacrificing too much in other areas. And that is generally what I would recommend doing. Yeah, I'm right there with you. There's no reason to think this deck just has to be cast aside. And I do think it has a mediocre matchup against the now pretty clearly recognized best deck in the format. Like, are we are we just saying that Demir Inverter is the best deck? It, it's kind of hard because it floated towards the middle, but I do think it was on everyone's mind. I think a lot of the technology was still being figured out. And I think people were still getting comfortable with the deck, so may not have had the reps. And if you have watched a bunch of Demir Inverter, this deck is intricate. And Baker himself played one of the most interesting matches of Magic I've ever seen against Edgar in the semifinals. Their game three, if you haven't seen it, go and check the replay. It was an absolutely awesome game of Magic, and there were so many competing considerations on both sides, and it shows just how complicated that Demir Inverter deck is. And it doesn't surprise me that it didn't blow away the field, but I do think you have to put it in the conversation for just the best deck in the format. Well, every team in Richmond that made top four had Inverter in their Pioneer seat. Correct. And yeah, it was by far and away the most represented deck on day two. Yeah, and granted, that is a deck that the good players chose to play. So then obviously people who are much better at Magic than the average SCG player, like their numbers are going to be somewhat inflated. That just happened to be the weapon of choice for those folks that weekend. But Yeah, Brussels, it did not do super well, but Nagoya, I mean, there were a lot of copies in top eight. It did not win the tournament, 
But uh, again, it was also in the hands of very, very skilled pilots in that top eight. So I think that it is safe to say that there is sort of a skill cap on a deck like this because you have to know exactly how to sequence even like your land drops. Because these mana bases are kind of wild with like choked estuary and fabled passage and the the random sort of utility lands, the various castles, if you rivulet, the cycle lands, you have op, dig through time, like all these different decision points. And that's even without getting into the fact that you're playing a combo deck. And a lot of the time when you are trying to set up wins with this deck, it involves playing like a naked inverter and just trying to like figure it out from there. And that can go wrong in a lot of different ways. And I've, I've been punishing people on Magic Online with it uh, a decent amount where, you know, they, they think it's fine to just like play Inverter and like, oh, I'll play Jace next turn. I just like kill their Jace. And I'm just like, what are you doing? You know, you just lost the game. <laughs> it's just so weird to me. Yeah. And now we're seeing decks contemplate that point of punishment. So someone told me about a Simic Ramp deck they faced that had four Ipnu Rivulets in it. And that's challenging to play around for sure. And the game that VTCLA played, he has a one of Ipnu Rivulet on his side of the battlefield. That just changes absolutely everything. It affects every decision made on both sides for the entirety of the game. And it's wild how impactful these small changes can be. So I will be keeping a close eye on that when it comes to Phoenix and seeing how people adapt. But like you said, five copies of this deck in Nagoya, all four of the top four slots occupied by Demir Inverter. And I realize this is a question about Niv and we've gone astray, but I don't see how you talk about Pioneer right now and don't mention this really breakout deck. Yeah, and there's not a ton that Niv can do to get better against that sort of deck just because I don't think so like at the, you can play a bunch of like thought erasures and you know if, if you want to think that graveyard hate is good against the deck it's it's really not that good the top end of the deck is like these five mana sorceries and it's just really not great against what the inverter decks overall game plan is and usually they they're just able to like play a leaner game get under niv and it's possible that Niv can adapt. Like I said, I, I'm not really seeing it, but for the most part, I think the fact that Inverter exists just sort of invalidates the stack to some degree. You know, while we're on this topic, do you want to talk a little bit about the decks which actually claimed first and second place in Nagoya? Because looking at our questions, I don't know exactly when we'll get back around to these decks. And it would be a shame not to mention the two decks that really housed a field full of Inverter. Uh, I know the Kenta Harane one was Spirits. I don't remember what was second. Second place was Ken Yukihiro oh, and okay. his SRAM Auras deck, which eh, if you had that going into the weekend, you can't eh, whatever ever the second place deck from the PT. Like, I understand it's Ken. Ken can win with almost anything, but like, there's got to be something worth paying attention to here, something to learn, something to maybe pick up like we don't we really have no concept of how good this deck is but certainly people will be considering it at this point so check it out monday i was hanging out with nick prince and uh sam the judge handsome sam i forget mm -hmm. his last name and sam was looking at max norton's data from the two pro tours with like the confidence intervals and stuff like that and he laughed that the confidence interval for Ken's right. deck was plus or minus 25%. And sure. it's like, it's like, yeah, okay. That's kind of funny, but realistically it should be higher than that. 
Probably. Yeah. I mean, we have no clue what this deck is actually capable of and the sample sizes are way too small. And I'm sure people are trying to figure out exactly what we have on our hands here. I, I love the fact that this looks a lot more like a modern deck when you start to talk about converted mana costs. Like this is a little bit of what I thought this format would be more cheap spells and that has been mostly absent and there's been a lot of haymakers instead a lot of four and five mana spells which i didn't expect when pioneer started so it's cool to see something that leans in that direction but like what do you see this deck is really taking advantage of is it just small numbers of spot removal spells that really can't yes. account for these tiny creatures yeah i most of the decks are like well i'm, I'm playing six and I, I kind of get into this in my article this week on Star City. I'm talking about uh, Sultai Midrange. And basically, there are so many decks that are hyper linear to the point where you can't really get away with playing a bunch of spot removal because it's, gonna get, it's go- going to be good against some decks, but not a lot of them, right? And right. that instead just makes it so your overall game plan should be fairly linear itself. And then you don't get like bogged down with playing a bunch of cards that just strictly interact with your opponent. You know, like Thoughtseize is the godsend where it is it does the same thing against everyone and it's good against everyone and it's cheap. So it's just like kind of the premier card in the format, right? But as far as things like, you know, Cast Down or Murderous Rider, it's like, yes, you know, these, these cards show up, but you can't load up on spot removal because you're just supposed to be doing something linear and ignoring people. And then that's when you can build a deck like this that is just a bunch of cheap creatures and auras and your SRAM is just more likely to live in this format than in standard, than in modern. It just is. Yeah, this deck, zero interactive spells in the main. Unless you want to count Karamitra's Blessing as like a weird counter spell, I will partially give you that one. But just not interested in what an opponent is doing, just putting together a threat, getting a little lifelink, padding the life total, having card advantage built into these engines, and that's good enough for Ken Yukihiro. I will expect this deck to be mostly absent. I think this probably requires a lot of understanding that people aren't going to have enough time to get between Nagoya and Phoenix. So I, I still don't think this is going to take over modern at this juncture, or excuse me, pioneer at this juncture, but there's something special here. Like this is the future of pioneer the same way modern's future was to get more and more linear and less and less interactive as card pools get broader and you don't have some way of checking on interactivity, like say a force of will or right. maybe a wasteland, then things will always trend towards linear. And this is maybe the first shot of Pioneer doing that type of modern two ships passing the night stuff. And a lot of it too is just finding the best one and two mana spells that fit together and just playing them together. Right. And that's it. You know, it's like not only are you building something that's linear, but you're building something that's linear and it just has a very, very low mana curve. And in the the case of Ken's deck, it does something that is potentially busted, right? Like if you untap with SRAM, you are are going to do some sick things that like no other deck in the format can really do. And there is 
kind of like a higher degree of variance, right? Because maybe you do just run into a bunch of blue white control, mono black aggro stuff that can actually kill your your SRAM and your other threats. But for the most part, you're just going to be playing against like other creature decks that don't have a ton of interaction, and you're going to be going over the top of them with your cheap engine stuff. And yeah, that's not, it's not like the solved version of the format, but like it is definitely going to trend that way until people start putting more interaction in their deck. And, you know, then that's what creates the natural churn. Right. And yeah, let's look at the winning deck as well. Bant Spirits from Kenta Harane. I mean, the spirits interact in some ways. There's Brazen Borrower, there's Spell Queller, there's things like Nebelgast Herald. But again, it's 32 creatures for Collected Company. We're not dealing with playing spells and trying to stop what your opponent's doing in traditional ways. It's about being linear, being aggressive, and just being on the battlefield. And I don't think it's shocking that these decks were able to rise over a field of inverters. I talked a bit about mono red and why the chonkier builds of red were ultimately squeezed out of the format. It's because they weren't doing this type of stuff. They were playing a bunch of slower, more interactive things. And that's the type of inefficiency that inverter can really, really prey on. But when you have card advantage built in and you're just doing something on every single turn, then you can start to punish their really limited answers. Yeah, agreed. I think like Kenta's plan, Ken's plan, just playing a cheap linear beatdown deck that has some disruption, just like a little bit, like enough to maybe like steal a turn from your opponent. That's all you really need. And certainly going into like an open field, that is the best possible thing that you can be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like there's also the mono black vampire deck in the top eight and Budakov kind of displaying some of the same stuff, but this trend's much more interactive. And given the sizing issues you face with Niv and inverters, you can understand why things like grasp of darkness just are not right for the format right now. Right. And similarly, it just means that the the random jackal pups of Aniline type creatures that get bricked by Thassa's Oracle, you just don't mess with those. You're just like, okay, well, right. I want I want to play Thoughtseize. I want to play some disruption. I want to play a clock. Well, maybe Vampires is just better than Mono Black Aggro right now because you don't have to worry about that nonsense. You're doing more powerful things by uh, having Sorin put Champion of Dusk onto the battlefield and stuff like that, and you just get to kind of ignore the one-three bodies instead of getting bricked by them. Yeah, I buy that. So I wouldn't be shocked if Vampires ended up actually being a better choice than Mono Black Aggro, but I don't know. I, I, I basically like both decks. I think both can be tuned to be reasonable in a format like this, and I think that Mono Black is slightly better against the linear proactive decks like Ken and Kenta's, but it's close. Okay. Uh, Tim Frank says a weekend of big opportunity can turn into a weekend of big disappointment. If, if you crash out of multiple LCQs and then try the GP and don't day two, what's your best advice regarding mentally prepping for that in a healthy way and processing after it does go down that way? So I think this is just about being honest with yourself, recognizing how much losing is built into magic. Like people are going to have a lot of bad weekends and this is like somewhat petty, but it's, it's not meant to be that way for me. 
it always helps to look who did really poorly at a PT. And the great, great players, the players I know to be just dominant, all-time greats who have a miserable, miserable weekend, it always makes me feel a little bit better. It's like, okay, these really great players just go through it the same way as the rest of us. It is a hard game. It is tough to have the right deck. And even if you do, sometimes just not your day. If you are realistic about what you're walking into when you head to this weekend, I think you should be able to write off your losses and do so honestly, certainly do so with a focus on trying to identify spots for improvement, but understand there's just some weekends where it's not going to go your way. Yeah. What is, what is the goal? If the goal is to win, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. Magic tournaments, mm-hmm. I mean, just like a, a lot of different tournaments, right? Like they're just set up in a way to create losers. Yes, someone wins the tournament. There are people who make top eight or top 16, their first day two, stuff like that, where they kind of hit these smaller goals that they've had. But realistically, it's a lot of people who walk away unhappy, unfulfilled, unsatisfied. And if you just assume or think or hope that you are going to be one of those people that is, you know, winning or hitting your goal, whatever that may be, I I think that that is not very realistic. So yeah, you know, practice some, some self-awareness, know exactly what it is you're getting into. And also I cannot stress this enough, recognize that winning is probably not the best goal to have. I firmly believe that trying to learn and get better is going to eventually lead to you having success wherever you draw that line. And if at the end of a weekend, even if you lost a bunch, that probably means you're learning a bunch. So you can just look at it like, okay, these are the things that I learned. I've leveled up in these various ways and I'm not going to make these same mistakes again. And that's a win. Count that as a win. Like every weekend you play magic every weekday, whatever you have these opportunities for growth and learning and improvement. And if you just don't utilize them for what they are, you are going to plateau and then you're probably not ever going to win a tournament, you know? So it, it is a process it's it's a huge huge learning process and eventually winning is just something nice that happens along the way yeah this is completely anecdotal because my sample sizes are too small to point to any real specific phenomenon going on here but i know authoritatively the worst performances across my magic career are the times when i convince myself I have to qualify for the Pro Tour. I have to do this. I have to chain this event into another one because this is my goal now. And anything else, just not going to cut it. Whenever I was doing that to myself, that's when my failures would start piling up and the stress would start to build. And it was just like the cycle of hyping myself up. Okay, now's the moment where I go all in and I would lean into that idea and fail every single time. Meanwhile, the absolute best stretches of my career are usually when I'm playing for fun. I'm treating it as a break. I am enjoying myself. I am confident and comfortable and not putting pressure on myself. And then I win a bunch. So 
there's something to be said for defeating yourself and the impact of pressure is very, very real. The best way to mitigate that is to just focus on process. Like you said, try and get better, try and learn, let all the other chips fall where they may. Well, I talked about the pro tour in new Orleans that I failed to qualify for went down, played the, the LCQ failed at that too. And I think a lot of it around that time was basically what you're talking about, where I'm just like, I have to qualify. I have to qualify or even the the more dangerous thoughts of like I deserve to qualify or whatever it's like oh I just need to like play in a tournament I'll win it right and I think what really happened through that season was that reality came knocking and I was like okay uh it is very clear that these things are not just going to be handed to me I have to work for them and I need to focus on getting better and actually doing that work and once you are putting in the work and focusing on that, yeah, like it, you're just not even thinking about how how much you want to qualify or what it would mean or whatever. It's just going to happen. You know, if you are genuinely trying to get better and trying to learn, how the hell aren't you going to qualify eventually? You know? Right. It, it hurts me to bring him up, but I, I think of my past friend, Alex Stratton, at a moment like this, who more than anything just wanted to qualify for a pro tour. If you ever met Alex, that's all he ever talked about. He was focused on it to the point of obsession and at some point realized that it was harming him and started to step back a little bit and let that goal just kind of fall back to the wayside. He qualified for a pro tour almost immediately when he took the pressure off himself. And it it just, it just goes that way. Nobody can perform their best when you're treating what is ultimately I mean, it's a serious game, but it's also a fun game. It's something we love. And when you're treating something you love as this horrible crucible, it's tough to find success. And think of people like Strosky, right? Where sure, he, he put a bunch example. of he put a bunch of pressure on himself to succeed. He had a lot of success early on. Uh, made top eight of two of his first four pro tours, I believe, and then you know kept trying to like get back there, right? And when he was finally just like, okay, I quit. Uh, I'm just going to give up magic and like play for fun. He wins a GP, wins a bunch of other stuff is now in MPL, like one approach or just it's, it's comical how much your mindset matters and the things that you focus on. Yeah. And we also saw this effect with a bunch of MPL members this past year, a bunch of folks talked about it, how this new system, their focus on remaining in the MPL really affected them both in terms of results and their mental state. So even the best players in the world, not immune to these type of situations. I I just hate to see people do it to themselves. Understand your possible outcomes. The vast majority of the range of the possible outcomes fall on the losing side and that's okay. You can still do your best and still learn even when you're not winning. Yeah. And that's, that's what you should want to do anyway. All right. Next question. From Liam, can I be on the show when I win an LCQ with my own deck? Absolutely. And a follow-up question, if I were going to switch decks to something else with relatively few reps, what should I play? For Liam specifically, I think probably Sultai midrange, but I admit that I don't know uh, like Liam's history all that much to be able to say definitively. It's just... I, I know that like from the decks that he has worked on and uh, we spent a decent amount of time playing against each other in 
uh, Las Vegas that I think that that's a deck that is quite good and that he would play well. So, so I tend to think of Liam as a combo person and let's give some background here. Liam's own deck is Underworld Breach, has been working on this archetype basically since it came out. I think if you are switching decks to something else, why not turn to the Lotus Field side of things? I think the top eight deck from Brussels looks fine. I was pretty impressed with Caleb Shear's play with the Lotus Breach deck in SCG Richmond. And this deck just seems fine. And it's dodging a lot of the stuff that the format's about. After the results of this past weekend, this is not what people are concerned about. They are looking in a completely different direction. And I could see a window for Lotus Breach to have a really big weekend because a lot of the typical forms of interaction do not line up with this deck. And we're talking about these very linear approaches and they seem successful. I think this is how you punish those very linear approaches because they mostly don't have clocks that outpace Lotus Breach at this point. Yeah, I mostly agree with that, but they do have a little bit of disruption that may or may not matter. Spirits, certainly. Spirits can do more than something like the SRAM Ors deck, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. SRAM I would not be worried about at all, but like any sort of mono-black deck with Thoughtseize, more discard in the sideboard, maybe some graveyard hate, you know, like things things can get dicey. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with the deck's resiliency and ability to play through discard effects when I watched it, and I am not an expert in this deck. Maybe I'm overstating that. Um, but it does seem like there's a good amount of redundancy built in at this point, and you certainly find your key pieces, and Underworld Breach is a big upgrade for the archetype. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm more so thinking about host board when they bring in more discard, not just like one Thoughtseize or whatever. Like, obviously, sure. one Thoughtseize, it, it doesn't do a whole lot, but yep. when they actually have hate for you, then it's kind of tough. Yeah, what's the best hate against Lotus Breach? Does anything spring to mind? Is there any specific cards that it really struggles against? For the ones that are really leaning on Underworld Breach, any sort of Leyline or Rest in Peace is definitely an issue. Yeah, it seems to me like they still just have their core combo, even in the absence of Underworld Breach. But again, this is not my specialty. It would not surprise me if I am misunderstanding this deck. Yeah, I would imagine that Liam is asking, presumably because he wants to get off decks like this. So that, that's right. kind of why I suggested Sultai. I think that Inverter is the best deck and Mono Black is one of the decks that you can probably tune to be very good against most things because I think that that deck is fairly flexible. There's probably like a more aggressive version of Mono Red that's quite good. Uh, I would not play Blue-White Control. I would not play Niv. Spirits is decent. Yeah, I I like Spirits on short practice, actually. It is mostly linear, and the interaction should be pretty clear, what you want to do in most spots, just on basic magic knowledge. Yeah, I'd be fine with recommending that. Not not a big fan of uh, Ramp or Heliod or Is It in Soul or anything. So, yeah, Spirits is good. Dark Cloud 06 wants to know which event had the best equity. I'm not sure about the past tense there. Uh, I would assume that they are talking about in Phoenix in general. And honestly, I didn't look at that too much. I would guess outside of, you know, grinding side events, it's probably just the GP main event. I would imagine that a lot of other people are going to be participating in the various other sides. And this GP might be small-ish. It's like hard to get to, but at the same time, it is the first GP with Pioneer, is that true? I mean, outside of like 
you know, Brussels Nagoya? I think so. I th- I think it's the first US one. Yeah. It's possible I'm just forgetting one, but it's weird because Brussels had a pretty huge GP attached to it. I'm actually not sure of the numbers on Nagoya off the top of my head. So is it just like US GPs continue to flounder? I don't I don't know. We just had a huge GP in New Jersey that was probably oversold, if anything. So are we on the comeback trail for really big GPs again? That's what determines where the best equity lies. For a while, GPs were starting to be pretty insane equity. They were very, very small fields. And obviously, the prize pools are mostly fixed when you head to a GP. So it also was your best method of qualifying as well. I think uh, DT Lurch did the math on that and found that these smaller field GPs were the best way if your only goal was to play on the PT. And also there's the finals invite too, which I think adds a lot of equity. Oh yeah, that's true. So my instinct is that it probably still falls on the GP side, but so much of this is about your goal. And just in terms of pure EV, like dollars in your pocket, they're all terrible. So don't even make decisions based on that. Yeah, stay home. Yep. Honestly, that's I mean, always, that's always the best equity. If if you are an above average player that has a reasonable shot of winning a PTQ, I think that it's possible that you could make more just kind of like hustling the other side events, but I mean, yeah. if if you're if you're doing that, I feel like you could still probably make more money by working at McDonald's, so I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's that's spot on. It's tough to make minimum wage just grinding out magic events for sure. And then DT Lurch asked, uh, no nonsense, what is the shortest list of decks you'd consider playing in the event? Uh, I kind of went through that. Inverter, Mono Black, Spirits, different version of Mono Red. I think that Sultai is pretty good too, and that's about it, honestly. I guess it's now time for me to pressure a little bit on Sultai because we haven't talked about the winning deck from Brussels yet. Just kind of classic mid-range uh, decks that felt like they were mostly squeezed out of the format, but but this deck put up insane numbers, and it wasn't just Yol playing it. There were multiple players playing Sultai Delirium, and it had a really, really good performance. Now, still on the smaller end of sample sizes, but you were talking about those confidence intervals, and the confidence interval on this deck suggests take it seriously, understand what's going on here, because this might be the next big archetype. I don't know about that because mid-range in general is just typically flawed, but this is... Seems that way, and this that's why this result surprised me so much. I I did not have my eyes on a deck like this going into the weekend. So the difference is that this deck is to play Seder Wayfinder, Grizzly Salvage, and Uro. So you are a mid-range deck with an actually good engine. Yeah, that's a big pickup. I tried doing stuff like this for a long time in Sultai with dig through time using Seder Wayfinder, often Grizzly Salvage to fuel that card to mixed results. It didn't quite have the oomph I was looking for, but it is very easy for me to see why if I was just able to slot Uro in the spot that dig through time was previously occupying, it did a much better job of squeezing together that mid game where I was just getting run over by the aggressive decks. Yeah, Uro is better because you get to do this, this rampy stuff. You gain life in the meantime and it's trivial to bring back the first time and then you kind of have to work for it from there but if it sticks against aggro or even against control really i mean like every attack trigger you're gaining life drawn cards like getting closer to 
playing Emrakul or a big walking ballista or cracking a bunch of clues with Tireless Tracker. So I don't know. Uro is just so good and basically so compact. Like you don't need to draw it in your opening hand. You can just mill into it with either of the like the Wayfinder Grizzly Salvage stuff. And it's it's just so good. It just helps the deck so much. It it keeps your life total fairly high for your thought seizes and all the shock lands that you have to play in order to facilitate this three color mana base and everything. So it just solves so many problems. Yeah, let's not forget when this format started, there was a lot of talk about Emrakul and this possibly being a card that should have been preemptively banned from the format. It has never even come close to living up to that potential. But it should, right? Like this is a powerful magic card. It messed up a standard format to the point it had to be banned. And really, it's just that this type of magic hasn't existed. We talked about a bunch of reasons why maybe it still should not, but it does feel like the secret sauce was found a little bit here. And there's a lot of good pieces that just can hold the fort until all this late game power comes together. Emrakul is medium. It's it's another factor of the format trending super linearly and that means that when you emrakul your opponents they don't have a bunch of stuff that can just wreck them you know that makes it's like oh yeah yeah you have a pile of creatures or even against like you know blue white control like they have a supreme verdict and the emrakul doesn't really do a whole lot so it's like a two for one maybe a three for one and a lot of the time that's enough to lock it up but like in standard it was basically just like you cast emrakul and you won the game you know right and in Pioneer, you cast Emrakul and against Spirits, for example, it's like they just they don't care at all. Like, yeah, you get to eat one of their things in combat and then they get to play like a Neville Gas Herald and tap it or whatever, you know. Right. Uh, so a lot of the time it just doesn't perform all that well. I do think it's the best end game that you could possibly play. It just doesn't necessarily close the door like it did in Standard. Okay. Well, that's an interesting change for that card, to be sure. Uh, so the PowerPoint for this deck, then, it's Uro, right? It, it's it's Uro, but not just the fact that like the card is in the deck. It is the fact that you you want to play all this self-mill stuff anyway to enable Traverse, and then those find your Uros and let you like continually replay them and stuff. So it is just like this very, very nice package. Is there any squeeze there between wanting to enable Traverse and Uro eating a lot of your graveyard? Somewhat. I mean, there are definitely situations where if you escape Uro, you can't Traverse, but a lot of the time you can just like Traverse for the target you want and then escape your graveyard and just keep like the weirdo card types. Like if you have the artifact, the enchantment, the planeswalker, you just let that hang out in your graveyard because you're going to get back to it you know, the creature instant sorcery land stuff pretty, pretty easily. So like I said, the, the first Uro bring back is pretty trivial. And then the second one gets harder and harder. And there, there is like some issue with traverse, but normally you just cash in the traverse uh, for, you know, whatever murderous rider, Emrakul, whatever you need in that particular moment. And then you just go about your business Uroing people. And that's typically good enough. Sure. Makes sense. Jake the Jackal, how often do you curb your own experience in comparison to others with deck selection? Uh, Played what I feel like are a lot of bad decks this last week, all of which people said were great choices. I I don't know what to do with that. I mean, it it really depends on how much you trust yourself. 
Uh, are you the type of person who, when you pick up a new deck, starts winning right away? Are you able to understand magic like that? I know for me, I'm generally pretty comfortable on low reps, but there's a lot of people who need to jam a bunch of reps until they feel like they understand a deck. So it really depends where you fall on that spectrum. If you have more learning to do, that's fine. If you think you have capacity to just understand that a deck is bad, look, you got to trust yourself at some point. And I think that's a big part in most players growth process as you get to the point where you go, no, I believe this conclusion, despite what these other people are saying. Now you don't want to do that just for the sake of being a contrarian. That'll bury you real quick, but you do have to respect your own conclusions to really be able to move the game forward. So maybe you're the one who's right, Jake. I don't know. That's going to be a question for you to ask yourself. So this question is not exactly clear, and I feel like this is one of the spots where I can kind of harp on asking better questions sure. so that you actually get the answer that you want. I so like that discussion too. It's a classic, really. Uh, so Jake says that he played what he feels like are a lot of bad decks this last week, which people said were great choices. Things things can be great choices and still be bad decks. Those things aren't mutually exclusive, right? So it's possible that something can be a great choice for a format while also, you know, missing something or being kind of high variance. And for a format like Pioneer, I frequently said that a lot of these decks do feel like they are missing certain things, you know? So maybe your bar for what is a good or bad deck is a little too high, or you have to look at what makes a good and bad deck respective to format and not just like, Oh, this deck is missing a certain piece or this deck is clunky or whatever. Like I, I just harped on Sultai having Uro and like this nice, just like complete package, right? It all fits together really well. And that didn't really exist before. So now I really like Sultai. I like the feel of it. I feel like it is a complete deck, but it might not be a great choice, you know? Yeah. I will note that, I have heard many, many people say every Pioneer deck is bad. I hate every right. deck in Pioneer. That is not a rare sentiment. So it's really nope. how bad is this deck in comparison to other options? Or, okay, they're all bad. So lower your bar. What is the best choice? It doesn't matter if the deck is quote unquote good or bad because it's still going to have a win percentage. What is that win percentage? Yeah, great point. Specificity in questions in the magic community is so lacking. And I know I come to this with like a lawyer's background, so I am a stickler for it, probably. So so what is my background? Someone who likes good questions. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know why you get the same bristles that I do from a question that doesn't really clearly convey its point. But Well, we're we're here to answer these questions, right? And this question gets asked and I just don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be answering, which just kind of stinks, right? So like I can infer a decent amount and maybe Jake didn't even realize that like, you know, bad decks can be great choices and that was just not a thing that crosses mind or whatever. I don't know. But like, why, why am I built that way? I, I feel like it's correct to want the question to be directed such that you get the answer that you want, right? That just makes sense to me. But how did that happen? I think that is a wise way to go about things. But language is tough. I am a deconstructionist at heart, and we certainly don't want to go down that path. So I'll just say it's challenging to ever clearly express your meaning. Not that hard. 
But it's easy for Jerry. Don't worry about it. He's got it wrapped up. I don't know. I think about all the miscommunication type things that have happened to me even just in the last like three months or whatever. And it's it's usually over the Internet. Right. But like, sure. I yeah, I, I make assumptions where like I just kind of like skip a step because I assume that the other person is going to know what I'm talking about right, or right, has right. the same information as me. You know, like a lot of those things happen. And I certainly used to do that with my article writing a lot, too. And I've I've learned to tone that down and not skip over things that are very imperative information for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I've gotten better or worse at that. I know when I was writing, when I started legal writing, I was very, very bad at that. And I think I certainly improved along the course of all the writing I did for years and years, but I don't really know how it's tracked to the magic side of things. It's interesting though. My instinct is to always skip over a bunch of steps and my mode of thinking is very free flowing and I would say easily distracted in most instances. So it's hard to get me to really check all the boxes and go step by step. But it's something I work on a lot and it just leads to better questions, better communication and better understanding. Yeah. And I I think that that just makes everything better and easier and nicer and we should all strive for that. Anyway, Delver guy wants to know extraction effects, ley line of the void. When is it a trap? When is it smart? Uh, says he's playing mono black for reference, but the answer to the question can be in general. So like, yeah, that's, that's nice. That's helpful. Gives us a, a little bit of insight into what exactly he's thinking about. Yeah. I think like many things, it's a cost benefit analysis, for something like Niv, it's pretty low cost to have your one of extraction effect included in the deck. And then it's how much is it really stopping opposing decks? And are there a bunch of opposing decks in the format that are really beat up by, you know, unmoored ego, whatever extraction effect you want to use? Uh, I think in Pioneer, the answer is they're okay. I don't think they're like a key feature of the format as they were in standard, even pretty recently on Mortigo had a lot of run in the standard format. I think way more than any of us expected. So, and way more, way more than it should have. Maybe, maybe I, I usually agree with that, but there were some specific problems that that was really the only tool you were able to use for a period of time. And, and that's the question too. Like, is there a more versatile, more versatile, more impactful tool I could use instead? Or am I just looking for a very easy quote unquote solution that doesn't actually solve the problem that you're facing? Am I supposed to just have aggression in the place of this? conditional removal effect. You really have to do the research and understand what you're trying to account for. And I think it's just a contextual question and you need to understand the format at large. So a couple of weeks ago, I was playing mono black. I had anywhere from three to four ley lines in my deck. And that was mostly because the dredge deck was kind of taking off. And also the underworld breach decks Mm -hmm. were starting to take off. And it was like, okay, well now these two decks combined are a large enough portion of the field that I feel like I should have Leyline in my deck. And then there was a time period where Dredge started to fall off, and therefore I cut the Leylines, played another discard spell, I think, and it was like, okay, that will help me against Control and the Breach decks, so I don't need to play the super narrow thing. And since Dredge left, that opened more metagame space for 
uh, different creature decks. So I had like an additional removal spell also. And now you don't have to play against Dredge. There aren't a lot of breach decks. There's the inverter stuff where you could make the argument for Leyline being good against them. Although I think that has more to do with like stopping dig through time than definitely messing up their combo. But at the same time, it makes comboing for them a decent amount easier sometimes. So it's kind of tricky. So then people are like, oh, well, maybe I just, you know, lost legacy or infinite obliteration them. And realistically, I don't think that beats anyone. I think that it stops them from having the the I win button, you know, but they're going to have some sort of way to beat you out of the sideboard. So you're going to have to like draw your lost legacy, resolve it, and then still be able to continue playing magic, which is typically very difficult when you're down a card and like spent a turn doing this thing. So extraction effects specifically are typically a trap ley line I, I don't think is ever really a trap unless there's just nothing that warrants it. Right. So yeah, this feels like two different questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I get where Delver guys coming from where these are like very narrow kind of high variance effects, you know, like is, is the ley line in your opening hand or is it like the eight or ninth card off the top? Right. But yeah. I, I don't know. I would, I would, I'm, I'm way more likely to register ley line than any sort of e- extraction effect just in general, because extraction effects means that something has to be very, very wrong with the format. So I want to talk through a really good extraction effect I saw this past weekend, and I'm piecing this argument together now on the fly, so I don't know if I have it all fleshed out, but it was a Lost Legacy cast by Aaron Barish, and she was playing the Yawgmoth combo deck, and she cast it against primeval titan and removed it from matthew dilks's amulet deck and i really liked it there and i'm working through the reasons why it seemed worthwhile the entirety of the Ogmoth deck is redundant it's court of calling it's eldritch evolution it's completely interchangeable undying creatures and then you just combine those with this one piece and the game is over so your win package is compact and you have about 16 ways to find it once you factor in once upon a time. So taking that moment off your game plan is not as impactful as it is in say, just like a linear aggro deck where this is like your three drop spot on the curve completely replaced here. It's more of a step aside and then your four drop is just going to win the game and that's fine. So there's something to be said for interlocking pieces, redundant pieces, and not just trying to play on curve magic that I do think can incentivize things like extraction effects a little bit more. But like I said, I'm piecing this this together right now. And I would have to really flesh this theory out before I would stake my reputation on it. Yeah, I mean, in in Yogg versus any sort of Primeval Titan deck, Primeval Titan is typically the card that allows those decks to go over the top of something that is mostly like a fair mid-range deck except with a combo kill Mm -hmm. so i understand why you would want to remove the primeval titans because it makes the game a lot easier it it makes you basically just like nerf your opponent's deck right and that could be worth it uh like you know spending a card and a turn to do that but i think there are a lot of situations where people kind of misevaluate that and it's not really a thing that 
actually ends up mattering. In in this instance, Aaron is correct. And I would wager that in, in general, like she is going to be correct more often than not, right? Right. Uh, she's very good. But yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to unpack the factors that made it feel very correct in that scenario. Because a lot of times I see an extraction effect cast and I'm like, gross, that was a waste of time. But here it felt like exactly what you wanted to be doing at that spot on the curve. Yeah. Yep. No, I mean, th- that makes sense. And especially because the aggro decks are like mono black aggro specifically is really trying to nickel and dime its opponent. And the Yawgmoth deck can do that, but most of the time it's going to win by assembling some combination of cards, right? Right. And then you just sort of win in a big way from there. Yep. So I understand why it is more okay to take time off when you're playing this pseudo combo deck, you know? Yeah. But in general, I would much rather play Spawn of Mayhem, Rotting Regisaur on turn three in Mono Black Aggro than any sort of Lost Legacy thing especially since there's not really a primeval Titan type of thing. I mean, there's underworld breach and maybe inverter you could argue kind of does the go over the top of you thing and removing them from your opponent's deck makes the games that much easier. But there are also just a lot of situations where that plan kind of goes awry. So, uh, and there are also people playing like Cokes from the netherworld or whatever. Cokes Cokes from from the the blind Blind eternities. Yeah. That was pretty rare, but I did see it. Well, I don't mind like one or two copies in the sideboard to beat extraction effects sure. or at least like give you the opportunity to still assemble the combo even after getting hit by an extraction. It, it's way slower, obviously. It is a thing that could possibly exist to make your extraction maybe not make the game as easy as you think it is. Yeah, maybe. I, I was very surprised to see the decks built in that fashion. I have never played with it, so I am not going to trash it. It was it was just a shocking way to go about building your main deck. I didn't like it playing like three of them or whatever. It's just, it's so clunky. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't think that higher percentage of the field had access to that effect. Like the, the consideration is Niv for the most part, you expect them to be the ones to do that in the main deck, but nobody else really can. Yeah. And your deck is also just good against Niv. So what are you doing? Right. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know. People just built it. Like it was like this all in combo deck, like I'll tutor for my combo pieces or whatever. And, that's not the optimal way to build the deck. Yeah. You want to be a, a combo control deck because that allows you to pivot in sideboard games and makes it way more difficult for people to sideboard against you and stuff like that. So what's your what's your favorite pivot right now? I mostly just like having fewer oracles main deck and just playing more interaction and more card drawing. Okay. And then Post board, I don't like Thief or Pack Rat. I think one Scarab God is fine. Uh, I, I basically like don't really want anything that gets hit by Mystical Dispute. So, right. like one Scarab God, I think is okay. But I wouldn't want to like load up on stuff like that. And I don't know, just anything, anything that's like cheap and draws cards is, so is money in my book. That's why I have liked Pack Rat because of its resiliency to Mystical Dispute. But it's just, it's just bad. Like even if even if it lives and it gets to do its thing, it's by no means guaranteeing victory. So what are you doing? I think it depends who you're up against. And in the mirror, when they weren't bringing in Legion's End, it felt like it was mostly good enough. Again, like small amount of removal spells, you can mostly outscale what they're doing. But I mean, I guess it's like you have to do comparisons to what you can potentially replace it with. And I saw Ashiox and 
hated them, thought they were just abysmal, like huge, huge high variant swings on that card. Like you said, anything getting tagged by, tagged by mystical dispute. So like Thief of Sanity is basically out for me. Somebody, I don't want to say who it is, but uh, I'll give them credit maybe on next week's shows in case they are trying to keep it under wraps. But somebody suggested a card you will be very excited to hear. I don't know if you like it in this particular context, but I know you love it overall. Treasure map, draws cards, little mana advantage, doing anything for you? No. No, nothing pass. Blood Bloodfast is better. Yeah, Bloodfast does seem better to me. Does it much faster. Yeah, and that that also came from someone who I'm not going to name. Maybe give them props next week. Okay. We'll see who ultimately takes it down. Bloodfast versus Treasure Map. You've betrayed your Treasure Map roots and are going with Bloodfast. I love Treasure Map, but this deck has a lot of black sources and people aren't really dealing you damage in matchups where you want that sort of stuff. So it is way better. And then obviously a Wombo Combos with Scarab God, which is cool. Yeah, no, it seems cool. I like it. Not Tim Turner. Thoughts on Gideon of the Trials of Target Inverter. I've been having success with it in stream. Is that on stream? I don't know. Yeah, Gideon is nice. It is very good. People are not playing enough ways to remove planeswalkers because they have not needed to before, but now you see random heroes downfalls cropping up in people's lists. Allie had two brazen borrowers in her sideboard last week that I really liked. And I want to mix and match those with like having charter course main deck and seeing how much that helps. Like if you're actually able to utilize that as uh, draw to in post board games. Granted, it's it's a card that does get hit by mystical dispute, but it's like more difficult to because you're mostly casting the two mana side first, right? And brazen borrower just solves a lot of random problems, like people bringing in leyline against you and stuff like that. Yeah, I like the flash a lot for sure. Maybe I'm a big dum dum. Inverter of truth is a big boy, six six flyer. Don't you uh-huh. just kill the Gideon? Is it just plussing you out of the game and that's the whole problem? Well, yeah, if you have inverter, they just they can just bubble the the six six. But it, it just makes it a lot more difficult for them to actually win the game, right? Like they just can't combo until they actually find a way to remove Gideon, which is not that easy. Okay. Yeah, I mean I think like if this becomes a widespread thing, it's probably pretty trivial to pick up noxious grasp, but might which might be a fine card in the format anyway. But also, what's the white deck right now? Is it, It's just like Heliod setups. And I mean, I guess if you were still tricking yourself into playing blue-white, you could do that. But for the most part, it seems like this might be a fine card without a really good home. Unless you believe in the white decks, which no top eight appearances, but I thought these decks were getting to a pretty reasonable place before these PTs. Heliod Company is good against the format two weeks ago. Okay. And, you know, things things might change uh, where those decks can cycle around to being good again, but I just don't think that they're great right now. Is Gideon, this matchup in particular one of the problem points? Yeah, I mean, like, you you don't have Thoughtseize. You do kind of have a clock, but you're mostly this value-gaining deck, which doesn't really interact well with someone who's trying to combo kill you on turn six or whatever, so... I think that that is a, a big part of it, and Gideon does a decent amount to help remedy that, but it's only one card. Uh, maybe there are other things, too. Like, I saw Remorseful Cleric doing some stuff, but, like, okay. I, I don't really like that either. 
Yeah, that card is always underwhelmed in my experience, but uh, it's, it's an interesting. There's still tech to be found in this Pioneer format for sure. Maybe someone can combine Gideon of the Trials with the right other pieces and actually have it matter. I mean, it's a card you could play in Spirits, but I think that a lot of the Spirits just disrupt anyway. Right. And you you get to side in things like Mystical Disputes, so there are better options, really, than just playing Gideon. Sure. And the last one, DT Lurch, is Sultai Inverter nonsense or sweet? Can't it be both? Usually, nonsense is the sweetest stuff, in my experience. Uh, it feels like a little bit of both. Most of the Sultai variants had that feel to them, where it's like, oh, maybe, but probably nonsense. They still gave you pause, something to consider. The, it, strategically, it doesn't blow me away. It's got a bunch of really powerful cards. That's fine. But I don't see a reason for it to exist. It feels like the Callblade stuff where you, we jammed all these other colors into Callblade. And it's like, no, these cards yeah, are just good was, enough on their own. That was me. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I did every color. I think that Sultai Inverter is fine. I think that people need to realize that building decks like this just as like strictly combo decks is not going to yield you better results than playing some amount of disruption and kind of splashing the combo. Sure. So for the four Oracle, four inverter, you know, three Jace versions, calm down, trim, trim some of those cards. It'll be fine. Play some thought seasons or whatever. It, your deck will be better. You don't need to turbo combo people. It's fine. Yeah. I mentioned that the total number of times I saw this deck just slam the combo on turn six or, you know, turn four into turn five, whatever, uh, was zero. And I watched a lot of games of this deck because it was the only deck that anyone was playing in the Pioneer seat. It just doesn't work that way. You play longer than that. As soon as you accept that, you can build your deck to have a lot more flexibility. Right. And that's why the deck is good is because you don't have to slam the combo. You get to play a longer game and eventually combo people out. It's better than killing people with Torrential Gear Hulk or Kalidus or whatever you were trying to do before. Right. All right. Any uh, closing notes for people heading to Phoenix this weekend? So I think we have said our piece on the people heading to Phoenix. I will say listeners, let us know what you think of this style of show. Let us know if it was helpful. I hope all of our listeners headed to Phoenix do well, have a great time, enjoy themselves. I hope they learned a lot from this particular cast. I think this is an interesting way to go about getting our listeners ready uh, and it's cool to do something a little bit more pointed. I, I kind of thought we'd get stuck with like a three-hour episode when I proposed this, and we'd be just bogged down with questions. But also, we kind of asked at the last minute and didn't give people much of a window. I think that was smart in our part. Otherwise, we'd just be here forever. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of was good because I do think that we covered a lot of the important stuff and got to talk about the format as a whole in relation to the very specific questions that people wanted. So I think that this ended up working out quite well. Obviously not something that we're going to do every single week or anything, but if if y'all like the switch up, let us know. If y'all hate it, you should let us know, but you could also keep it to yourself. That's <laughs> Whichever one you prefer <laughs> is fine. That's the way we no, take all us. negative feedback. You can either no, tell, us tell us or uh, go away. No one cares. We will take feedback, but similarly to the asking good questions, please provide good feedback. Don't just be like podcast man bad. Well, that's that's pretty eloquent, actually. That's game.
Good luck.